across the galaxy. This is where conspiracy on the wild side meets the perspective of a lifetime. This is the Free Zone with your host, Freeman. Hello and welcome to the Free Zone. Well, it's been an amazing decade, an amazing 10 years of producing and broadcasting from Freeman TV. And as a celebration of these 10 years of broadcasting, I am inviting back many of the original guests from the Freeman perspective. And one of these special guests is Dr. Michael Sala, who was on the show back in 2006. It's hard for us to believe that so much time has gone between our talks. Uh, it just goes by so fast. But you are in for an exceptional show because Dr. Michael Sala is the pioneer of exopolitics, the uh, understanding of the processes and the institutions associated with extraterrestrial life. His interest in exopolitics uh, evolved out of his investigation of sources of international conflict and its relationship to the extraterrestrial presence. He has founded exopolitics.org. I highly recommend reading it or going there and reading his books, Exopolitics, Political Implications of the Extraterrestrial Presence, Exposing U.S. Government Policies on Extraterrestrial Life, Galactic Diplomacy, Getting to Yes with E.T., and his latest work, Kennedy's Last Stand, Eisenhower, UFOs, MJ-12, and JFK's Assassination. We're going to get deep into some amazing stories here and check out the parallel dimensions that are going on on planet earth within the ufo communities so welcome back to the show dr sala hi freeman aloha yes it's great to be back and amazing nine years that's a long time since we last spoke i can't believe it really and uh yeah i mean things were so different back then and uh you know we've uh we've all developed greatly over these years of of study right well, that's right. Yeah, back then, exopolitics was still a fairly new discipline, um, but now it's been around for, for well over a decade, and there's a lot of people doing exopolitics work, and there's just a lot of people now that are really interested in finding out what it is about extraterrestrials and how it affects public policy. So, yeah, it's definitely grown as a field, but we're still waiting for... Um, you know this to kind of break through into the major into the major major leagues in terms of the media and academic institutions and, and you know and basically you know the congress and so forth but we're getting a lot closer yeah it's going to be an amazing day that day when they tell the world there is extraterrestrial life now of course they've been preparing us for this with all of the media streams and now it's even becoming quite uh, mainstream in the political realms. We have now ambassadors to extraterrestrials. We have for the UN, for NASA, for um, around the globe, from the Vatican. We have people coming forward with this extraterrestrial hypothesis saying, well, what will we do when we discover extraterrestrial life? Now, usually this is not going far enough for most of the knowledgeable public that has been studying this extraterrestrial story now for a decade as it has blossomed through the internet and we can see a shift in in the mindset between people of trying to figure out how far we really need to go to understand this puzzle because we're at a situation where some people are simply still trying to prove there was a flying saucer that crashed at Roswell while others are exploring the concepts of galactic history and exploring the, the foundations of civilization through extraterrestrial presences. <laughs> so I think that there's a long way to go in these two split worlds where some are still just waiting for that evidence. Now, recently, you were included in with the bombshell that was the new Roswell Slides. And this was supposed to be the smoking gun, the critical evidence that would absolutely prove that extraterrestrials crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. What did you you were you were invited to investigate these these images, right? 
Well, I wasn't invited to investigate. I basically, all I did in that case was just cover the uh, presentation, the live stream uh, screening of the presenters that went to Mexico City to present their data on these slides. So essentially, I just uh, wrote a story basically covering uh, who presented information concerning these slides being uh, real slides from that 1947 uh, era and what they thought the body in the slides depicted. Right. Now, a great many people came forward and said, I think that's a mummy of a two-year-old boy. Did you get that feeling from this? Did you feel that these were official or, uh, you know, legitimate images from Roswell? Or did you think that it looked maybe like a mummy from the Smithsonian? Well, I didn't really know at all. Uh, like many others, I just basically tuned in uh, for that Mexico City presentation to find out what the slides were all about. Because uh, the first I heard of it was probably about uh, six months earlier uh, when uh, Tom Carey uh, travelled to American University and said that uh, they had smoking gun evidence of uh, some uh, of, of an extraterrestrial body recovered from, from Roswell in the form of photographs. And um, basically, uh, so he set in motion a lot of speculation about this. And so basically this event in uh, in May at Mexico City was supposed to deliver the definitive proof. So I, like a lot of others, just kind of like uh, signed up for the live streaming and, and tuned in and just watched what, what exactly did Tom Carey, uh, Don Schmidt and the others uh, have that actually proved or substantiated that this was an alien body uh, associated with the Roswell crash. And so, you know, they showed... Uh, images of the of these slides, uh, they they gave the presentations of several of the expert uh, witness testimonies or the experts that analysed the slides. Uh, they also presented uh, their own investigation into the credibility of the slides, the dating, and so forth. And they also talked about the um, the the, pla the placard. Uh, that they that was uh, also in the slide, and they said on the night that they said that the placard was undecipherable. That uh, that basically they took the slides to various experts, and all the experts agreed that you couldn't decipher the the, the placard. Well, on that on that night, that's when they released higher quality uh, images of the of the slides. And so now a lot of the people that had for six months earlier been wanting to find out, well, you know, what, what exactly uh, is in the slides, you know, why don't you give us the high resolution images rather than these kind of very blurry, low resolution versions. Well, on that night at Mexico City, um, uh, Richard Dolan uh, uploaded onto his Facebook and to the Coast to Coast AM radio show uh, the first high-resolution version of the slide. And so basically from that moment, uh, many who had been studying this case and trying to find out what it was that the slide depicted uh, zeroed in on that placard and they applied an, an anti-deblurring uh, sorry, a deblurring program, and they were able to decipher that the actual placards are referred to a two-year-old uh, mummified remains of a child uh, that was on loan, uh, and and so this was when basically the, the the whole case that this was an actual extraterrestrial body began to collapse because now you actually had the placard saying that it was a two-year-old. Uh, mummified body. Now, of course, you know, that for some people didn't settle the issue, but for, for others associated with the investigation, that did settle. And so you had a, a, some former supporters, such as um, and Donald Schmidt, uh, basically conceding that, uh, that their earlier support uh, was not well-grounded, that in fact the placard uh, did suggest that this was actually nothing more than the mummified remains of a two-year-old Indian child. Well, okay. And then you just got to wonder, you know, is this misinformation or simple uh, hoax or, you know, what they're 
why this was uh, you know, promoted so well. It's an interesting time that we're in, and that when we go all the way back to, say, Billy Meyer and the photographs of the UFOs that Billy Meyer was taking, now we can conclusively say that there was no digital manipulation going on when you're looking at a Billy Meyer photograph of a UFO floating out over the, the sky and, and letting him take these pictures. So we have like this more, more definite proof of, uh, of these flying saucers. I won't even say it's extraterrestrials because who knows? It's a flying saucer. We know that much. But now we're in the days of, of video manipulation of, uh, you know, everybody's got Adobe Premiere or at least, you know, anyone that wants it. And they can do all kinds of crazy things. And we had that UFO event over the Temple Mount. And we had a massive pyramid over Russia. Um, so... Uh, what's your opinion on on this type of thing? Like going back to Billy Meyer and this type of photography, and knowing that we can we can say, well, you know, he couldn't have faked that. To where we're at now, where we're like, I don't know, I can't tell anymore. Because right now we're seeing so many UFOs. I mean, because of the digital age, we have so many cameras out there. We're seeing some crazy stuff in the skies. Well, that's right. Yes, um, yeah, we are in the digital age with Photoshop where people can manipulate photo images to make very realistic um, depictions of UFOs that are really forgeries. But of course, if you go back to the Billy Meyer era, you know, the 1980s, um, and then even earlier back, I mean, there, there were many uh, UFO shots taken by uh, the, the, the UFO or the flying saucer contactees uh, such as Howard Menger, George Adamski and, and many others that showed um, UFOs. Um, and these uh, were taken at an age and in, in the, particularly in the case of George Adamski, I mean, these have not been shown to be frauds at all or, or, or hoaxes at all. So I, I think that, uh, yes, if we're going to focus on UFO flying saucer images, that, uh, yes, we can go to people like Billy Meyer or George Adamski and say, look, this was all done in the age uh, before digital computers and Photoshop and so forth. So we can kind of like be fairly... Uh, certain that this is very real, genuine depictions of flying sources as people saw them at that time. You know, we're going we're gonna to take this into in layers here because we're looking at a situation where we're simply trying, there's, there's pe a lot of people in the world that are simply trying to prove that UFOs are real. Now, I have the disfavor or the favor, I don't know which it is, of having a father that was in Project Blue Book told me yes flying saucers are real i used to chase them for the government so now i'm left with that i also have my own personal ufo experiences and i'm left with that and yet when we look at our mundane world we we see none of this in our every day to day and so the the common public is generally saying well there's nothing to this or it's all hoaxes and we've we've got this split in our in our mentality of does this extraterrestrial presence even exist? And then we have this other cycle of situations where galactic history is occurring right now in front of each and every one of us. Plajarans are visiting Billy Meyer. Uh, one of my favorite stories, of course, is Ra'el, the, the character Claude Virilian, who in the south of France met with a, a being who called himself Yahweh and met with Ra, well, Claude Virilian in a flying saucer and then told him that they were the gods of old and that they would be returning as the Elohim and that Ra -El, or Claude should take on the name Ra'el and build an embassy in Israel for the Elohim's return, which included a, a symbol of the Star of David interwoven with the swastika. Now, this same man, Ra'el, somehow strangely ends up in front of Congress on the important discussion of human cloning. And there he is in his big white puffy spacesuit with his golden medallion of the Star of David and Swastika around his neck, telling everybody that they have no souls, but that you can be immortal because we have these bodies that can be cloned and that we have body computers that can have mind transfer technology and we can live forever. And Ra'el pretty much put this image on 
the concepts of extraterrestrial contact and on the ideas of human cloning that left the rest of the world just going, pa, I'm not even going to think about any of this. So, well, okay. you raise some really important kind of issues there, and uh, that is, what, how do we deal with um, different people who have had uh, contacts with extraterrestrials? Uh, you, you have uh, Rael with the Elohim, you have uh, Philip Krapf with the Vedans, uh, you have Billy Mai with the Plajarans, George Adamski with the Venusians, and so on it goes. So I think when we look at all of this, what we can see is that there are many different extraterrestrial groups out there. They all have their own agendas. Some of the agendas, I think, are very positive, wanting to assist humanity, and other agendas are probably very questionable, whether they really are wanting to assist as they claim or whether they just kind of want to manipulate us with a kind of new reality or some belief system that in the end um, ensures that we lose our sovereignty. So I think it's very important that we start to kind of like get a, an overview of the different ET groups out there. It's almost like, um, you know, going out and buying a new car. You know, if you if you go out and you think, okay, well, the, the, only, the only real car, uh, you know, the only choice I have out there is say, say, uh, like, like the, the Lada or something, like an old, like, um, like the old Russian car, I think it was called the Lada or something. You know, so you're going to look at the Lada and what the Lada offers, and so you're, you're going to kind of come up with a very limited kind of uh, range of options. But then if you kind of like say, oh, well, there's, there's different brands, you know, there's, yes, there's the Lada, but there's also, you know, there's also uh, Toyota and Honda and Ford. And so there's many different brands, many different models, and you make your choice. I think in, a, in the same way, we should approach the whole extraterrestrial issue, look at the, these different extraterrestrial groups and see, okay, well, this is, um, you know, they have, they have their own, viewpoints their own kind of history you know what you know in a sense what they're, they're what they're trying to sell us if you like and you kind of look at that and say well what's the best for me what's going to be the best for us as a society as a community and i think um, at the end of the day we're all going to have to make informed choices as to which extraterrestrial group is going to help us the most just as when we're going out there shopping for a car we make an informed choice about what's the best model for us based on kind of uh, all of the information that we have on these different models so we've got to do the same thing with extraterrestrials and not rely on just one group telling us okay you know we're we're the best in town you don't need to listen to anyone else you know this is what we offer you and you should go with us right yeah it's it's you know there's so much information out there so many channeled information so much coming to light and a lot of it is unified in its storyline and a lot of it is what you're gathering together to kind of compile galactic history so we're we're, you know, one 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 group that most people don't think about as as connecting and contacting extraterrestrials is on the dark side, and this is people like the Thule Society and the Nazis the, that would utilize ritual magic to make contact with interdimensional beings or demons or jinn or extraterrestrials as they would even call them. Uh, and then make this contact and then utilize the knowledge that they were gaining to create technologies to dominate the world. Well, it's very interesting uh, that you mentioned that, Freeman, because people often think of the dark side as like, you know, some mysterious Darth Vader-like um, kind of force that kind of like sends chills up your spine because it's so sinister. But actually, I don't think it kind of works that way. I think in a way, uh, I don't if you ever watched the Babylon 5 series uh, I thought that was very interesting because it kind of depicted two ways in which uh, these different extraterrestrial groups operate I, I think that the, that the say the positive side it basically makes us ask the question who are we who am I whereas the dark side asks us the question what do you want right. what is it that is going to give you some kind of satisfaction, some pleasure. And I think this is the way in which it operates. And if you look at, say, if you go into kind of religious history, it wasn't that the way in which, um, you know, like 
Jesus was tempted in the desert. It was like, you know, what do you want? I can offer you the world. I can offer you an empire. You know, is this what you want? And he said no. He, he preferred to just kind of like find himself in the, in the desert. And I think this is the way in which the light side and the dark side operates. The dark side always asks us, what do you want? What is it that's going to give you pleasure? Is it immortality? Is it a youthful body? If that's what you want, we'll give it to you. No problem. And, of course, once you've made that choice, once you go down that path of what what it is that you want, what it is that's going to give you some kind of momentary pleasure, then you're following the dark path, even though you might not think it, but you are following that path. Whereas the light path or the path of kind of like being in service to a higher principle always operates on the basis of, you know, what is it – who, who are you? How can how can you better find out who you are? Yeah, yeah, that that sounds absolutely correct. That your intention has everything to do with uh, you know good or bad magic, as it were. Uh, so we're at a time right now where NASA has announced that they have an extraterrestrial ambassador, Linda Rothschild, and. UN has announced that they have Moslin Othman as their intergalactic uh, ambassador for the Office of Outer Space Affairs, which some people don't even know exists. Uh, and we have these Jesuit astronomers, the lead Vatican astronomers, running around saying, well, I would baptize E.T. no matter how many tentacles he has, and that aliens are our space brothers and did not suffer original sin because they were not born of Eve. So now we have the Vatican. I mean, uh, what a crazy thing and a crazy time. The Vatican, the UN, the Royal Society, and NASA all coming forward with, uh, well, we're going to deal with extraterrestrials and let's start some legislation, let's start some institutions, and it's really reaching the public political spectrum. Well, uh, that's exactly right, uh, Freeman, that there has been uh, the kind of emergence of major institutions, academic and kind of religious institutions, actually getting behind this idea of preparing society for the discovery of extraterrestrial life. And starting in 2009 um, and 2010, you've had, you've had the Vatican um, involved in that, you've had the United Nations involved in that, the Royal Society involved in that, all hosting events, um, basically trying to get people to start thinking about, well, what happens if we discover extraterrestrials tomorrow? What are, what are going to be the social, political, economic, uh, scientific consequences of that? And so a whole bunch of as- astrobiologists and astronomers and religious and social scientists have been uh, convening at these very uh, different organisations. Um, you know, you mentioned Maslan Othman, who, who at the time, I believe it was around 2010, 2011, uh, travelled to London to participate at the Royal Society Conference on what would the United Nations do uh, with the discovery of extraterrestrials if extraterrestrials suddenly showed up. You know, what would be the United Nations steps in that? So she kind of responded to that and explained what would be going on. Uh, but but the And also you've had uh, kind of NASA and the Library of Congress being involved in this process. Uh, but the, the really surprising development for many people has been the role of the Vatican because when you think of it, logically, I mean, isn't the Vatican a religious organisation? Why is the Vatican at the forefront of this scientific do endeavour to try to understand the implications of the discovery of extraterrestrial life through the latest astronomical scientific techniques? You know, why would the Vatican be involved in this? Well, indeed, the Vatican has been at the leading edge of this. The Vatican has been driving this process from 2009, basically sponsoring and initiating conferences and papers all trying to get the public to consider what would be the consequences of uh, discovering extraterrestrial life and and so you have the Vatican's uh, various astronomers uh, the majority of whom are actually Jesuits 
um, all basically coming forward and discussing the consequences. And as, as you mentioned, um, uh, Gabriel Funes, uh, he was the one that came out first and basically said that uh, extraterrestrials, uh, we can envisage them as being kind of more ethically involved than being born without sin, but nevertheless, they would be, they could be our brothers in Christ. Um, and more recently, you have a, a Jesuit brother by the name of um, uh, a guy, Consul Manyo, and he has been actively trying to push this idea that extraterrestrials are worthy of baptism, that in fact extraterrestrials, uh, because it's likely that they're going to be more ethically evolved than us um, and therefore uh, not require the kind of same kind of cosmological uh, significance of someone like Jesus being born amongst them, that they, even though they're going to be more ethically evolved, that they're not going to have the same kind of spirit, uh, spiritual theological uh, basis as humanity through uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the unique role of Jesus, who came here to save us because we are less ethically involved. So the, so the Jesuits, through their kind of very famous uh, kind of casuistry or their kind of ability to be able to weave very esoteric um, uh, concepts together are basically going to be saying that uh, humanity, because Jesus uh, is unique to humanity as this kind of cosmological uh, Christic event, that uh, humanity is best placed to spread the message of Christianity to the stars. And so I think you actually have, with the with the Vatican's involvement with this whole extraterrestrial question, them laying the foundations of a new religious crusade, which would make a Catholicism into a kind of cosmological, cosmic religion, hmm. and that the Jesuits and the Catholic Church would be at the center of that. Amazing. And we are getting a lot of wind turbulence, uh, just if there's anything that can be done. But that, that, that's a scary thought there, Dr. Sala. Oh, my Lord. It, it would, it, and it, it's all such a strange puzzle because at that same moment, we have Pope uh, Benedict stepping down. We have these same Vatican astronomers attaching themselves to CERN. And, you know, we get so many stories like uh, Carl Sagan with the idea that E.T. is transmitting data to us to build a machine to open a portal for them to enter or for us to go into their world now sagan he was always one that was very staunch about the billions and billions of planets out there that should have life but then when it came down to the the end of his life and the story of contact the movie uh it became more of a um, ethereal thing and more of a uh psychological thing where they were where she was actually transmitted into a, another dimension, if you will, and and the extraterrestrial was, you know, a figment of her father, and we get to this concept that the extraterrestrials are sending us information to create a device that will open a portal for them to enter, and and now we have these same uh, Vatican astronomers, Jesuits, going over to CERN. What, do you have any thoughts on CERN now that it's cranked up to thirteen TeV and? how it might relate? Um, I really don't know too much about the CERN uh, facility itself. Um, I, I really haven't studied it in any great depth, but I, I do want to say that when it comes to the whole kind of concept of um, building advanced technologies, whether you're talking about portals or spacecraft, from communications that originate from some different extraterrestrial group, I think that that actually has been going on for a long, long time. Um, and that we could even go back to the 1920s and the Vril Society with Maria Orsic and those that actually uh, were channeling communications from a group of extraterrestrials allegedly from the uh, Aldebaran system. 
And what Maria Osic uh, channeled was um, in the Sumerian language. And so when they actually got some uh, experts, some Sumerian experts, they found that this information was all about the construction of an advanced extraterrestrial spacecraft. Um, and there may even have been information there about a portal. And so uh, from the 1920s, you had many people, many leading German industrialists um, helping in the construction of these uh, flying saucers that uh, had been transmitted through these um, telepathic communications that Orsic and others were involved in. And, um, you know, she wasn't the only one. There have been uh, others as well. Uh, Wilbert Smith, the Canadian uh, radio um, uh, transportation expert with the Canadian Department of Transportation, he also was involved in uh, radio communication or in telepathic communications with uh, some extraterrestrial groups that were also passing on information on the construction of flying. Uh, Sources. So I think this has been going on for a long time. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? If if they're here now, then more than likely they've been here all along. You know, I can't imagine that extraterrestrials just suddenly discovered planet Earth. And recently we had a bit of a debate <laughs> between uh, Graham Hancock and Zahi Hawass. And listeners of this show know that I have no love for Zahi. And it's all centered around Gobeki Tepli. And I was wondering if you knew anything about the significance of the, the find at Gobekli Tepli and how this related to the extraterrestrial creation of civilization or if this just had any relationship to that whatsoever. Do you know? Um, well, I, I think that as far as Gobekli Tepli is concerned, you know, it's an example of the remains of an ancient civilization um, and just like the, the pyramids of the remains of an ancient civilization that um, that there have been past civilizations on the earth that achieved a high degree of technological development but then through destructive earth changes and other events that uh, basically all, everything that these civilizations had built of a technological um level were destroyed and all that were remained were some stone artifacts you know whether it's the pyramids or whether it's Gobekli Tepe and and I think that this kind of is very suggestive of the idea that uh, when you have these advanced civilizations rising and flourishing for a time and then when there is some kind of cataclysmic earth-changing events that essentially um, all the technology is wiped out and all that remains are kind of very large stone structures, you know, whether it's Gobleki Tepe, the pyramids, Stonehenge and so forth, that that's pretty much all that remains. And I, I think that the re relevance here is that we know uh, that there have been past technologically sophisticated civilizations on the earth that have risen and fallen. And the big question we have for ourselves is, you know, what we can learn from the past to avoid the mistakes of the past. And if we don't know the history, uh, then we are very likely to repeat history and we really don't want to do that we, we want to survive whatever it was that the ancients couldn't survive and so that means we need to learn from what happened uh, in the past and unfortunately because the true history of humanity has been covered up that means that there are forces on the planet that want us to repeat history and basically go the same way of the of the Atlanteans, the Lemurians, the and the Hyperboreans and many civilizations even older than that. All right. I can see that and understand. Yeah, people often tell me that I don't go far enough when I'm simply discussing things like uh the X37B which was just launched uh, last March 20th. And, you know, I, I like to keep a, abreast of these things, and I actually got to watch the X-37B launch from the beach of Florida. And, of course, they can't hide the launch, but they can hide what this militarized robotic space plane is going to do for the next two years while it orbits our planet. 
they did announce that they were doing tests and trying out new ion propulsion systems and that they were also attempting a, a solar sail. But <clears throat> so as I discussed the height of the open space program, even if it is a clandestine military program, people still want to know, well, what about the secret space program? And I see that you have a conference coming up. Do you want to give a bit of a promo for the Mount Shasta Summer Conference? Sure. That's a conference where I'm going to be talking about secret space programs and uh, extraterrestrial civilizations. That going to, that's going to be held in August at Mount Shasta, and people can find more information about it at my website, exopolitics.org. Uh, but basically, uh, Freeman, what I want to mention here is that you know, there are multiple layers of secrecy and space programs and advanced technologies. So NASA in itself is kind of like a um, cover program for a secret military space program. So the X-37B, as well as the B-2 bomber, as well as, say, the X-22 and other craft that use electrogravitics um, principles in combination with with kind of uh, more conventional rocket propulsion technologies – these are, these are classified at different levels, but you actually have even more highly classified levels uh, for genuinely interstellar spacecraft that are part of the secret space program, such as Solar Warden. So this is one of the things that uh, people don't realise, is that um, people that have been um, kind of briefed on the secret military space program, where you actually have a secret space shuttle program where the military launches space shuttles from Vandenberg Air Force Base and Beale Air Force Base, that these uh, military space shuttles that can place hundreds of astronauts in uh, in orbit around the Earth um, in secret space uh, stations up there that, that is run by uh, uh, US Space Command and the US Navy Space Command, that they themselves are covers for even more secretly or more highly classified space programs. And so this is important because it means that people who have actually, who have a military background and have worked on uh, these military space programs where they have um, a military space shuttle that goes into near-Earth orbit and kind of rendezvous and does things in space such as uh, the X-37, that these themselves are cover programs for even more classified programs. So this is this is how you have uh, programs such as uh, Solar Warden being kept secret because you have cover military space programs and then uh, and then you actually have a cover civilian space program which is the NASA program so you have different classification levels different cover programs okay can you tell us a little more about solar warden i've uh, talked a little bit with Olaf sure. Phillips about that but yeah i'd like to know more okay well well solar warden basically is the first genuine um, deep space space program uh, that was developed um, in the 1960s and the 1970s where they were able to establish bases on the moon and bases on Mars. Um, and so this, the, the, the anti-gravity vehicles that they were sending to the moon and to Mars, uh, these were part of a program which became known as Solar Warden. Now, that is a program which is very different to the secret military space shuttles that they fly from Vandenberg and uh, and, and Air Force bases, that the that the Solar Warden program has been sending craft to Mars and the Moon uh, from the 1960s, and in the 1970s, uh, the uh, Solar Warden was able to basically deploy deep space craft to travel throughout our solar system, establishing bases on, say, the moons of Titan. Uh, oh, sorry, the, one of the uh, one of Saturn's moons, Titan, and elsewhere throughout our solar system and beyond. And so this is a highly classified secret space program where they actually have uh, astronauts trained to go into deep space. 
Um, and so this is where you get uh, kind of the, the kind of things that uh, Gary McKinnon was talking about uh, with fleet to fleet trans uh, fleet to fleet transfers and kind of non-terrestrial space officers uh, that he was talking about the Solar Warden Space Program, and that there have been uh, whistleblowers that have been coming forward talking about the Solar Warden Program, and that this truly is a space program that is capable of uh, flight throughout our solar system and also into deep space, as well as establishing bases on Mars and the moon. <laughs> that definitely paints a picture of an astronaut coming over and brushing the dust off of the, the solar panels on the Mars rover. You know, so. Exactly, exactly. Like that uh, that story of, of Jackie uh, where in 2006 she rang, rang in on a coast-to-coast uh, AM uh, show and basically said, look, I worked at NASA. I was downstairs. My job was to monitor the monitors. You know, we were to repair them if anything, any problem came up with them. And here we see this uh, two two basically uh, astronauts on Mars walking over to the Viking lander and cleaning it and doing something to it. And, of, and of course, she says when they ran upstairs to confirm that this was indeed going on, that they saw that it was happening in the main telemetry room. So, yes, there's a space program on, on Mars itself. Amazing. And now we have all these people signing up for their one-way ticket to Mars. And uh, there's so such a split in our mentality, and you would think that these military programs. Now, I I just want to admit that I, while driving up the highway in Utah, had a large V-shaped craft fly over the car at about ten thousand feet, with um, what seemed to be plasma balls up uh, holding it up together. Now, I have read the anti-gravity handbook. And so I've seen the patents for anti-gravity. I understand the concept of uh, pocket-sized particle accelerators spinning on gyros that are causing gravitational forces so that this can, uh, you can fall in basically whatever direction you want to fall in. And when I saw this V-shaped craft, I was certain that it was not extraterrestrial in origin. It just, to me, uh, that I said high space program. That definitely seemed the case. So... I actually have an eyewitness, uh, you know, uh, account of seeing one of these craft and understanding the anti-gravity that is involved in all of that. Uh, I was I was actually taking that somewhere, but if you had a, a statement, sure. Well, those um, kind of V-shaped craft. Um that sounds very much like the TR-3B, which is um, a craft that's kind of like 600 foot wide and um, has gravity reduction uh, technologies on it, which can reduce the the weight of the vehicle by 89 percent, and and that would that would enable the vehicle to kind of easily leave um, Earth's orbit. Uh, because uh, the, the main, most of the energy uh, for conventional rocketry goes into escaping Earth's um, gravity field. But if you actually have a reduction in the weight of the craft uh, by a factor of, say, 90%, uh, that would mean that it wouldn't take all that much energy to leave the gravity field of the Earth. And so the, the um, TR-3B is an example of uh, a kind of gravity reduction uh, technology which is combined with more conventional rocket propulsion systems, which is why the TR-3B operates in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and people see have seen it, like you have the Belgium uh, Triangle uh, wave uh, in the 1990s uh, where they saw a, a fleet of these TR-3Bs. And so these are, these are craft that are, are kind of like a, um, in the kind of middle range in terms of the, the kind of... Uh, uh, space secret space shuttles that the military space program uses to send into near Earth orbit, and the kind of more advanced um, craft that is used by the Solar Warden program to send craft to Mars and elsewhere in the solar system. That the TR-3B is a kind of like mid-range craft between these two things. And what's very interesting is that Corey Corey Good, um, he is a 
uh, a, a new s secret space program whistleblower who's recently come on the scene and he has described the TR3B as kind of like a hand-me-down uh, from the secret space program that originally when the, uh, when the TR3B was built in the 1970s, it was state-of-the-art. And so it was used for the secret space program, the program that was sending astronauts to, to Mars or to the moon. And so the TR3B was a part of that program. But as uh, as Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and many, and many other advanced uh, aerospace companies came up with more advanced technologies, the TR3B became redundant. And so what they did was they turned the TR3B over to the military space program, the cover program that flies secret space shuttles up into near-Earth orbit. And basically, uh, the military now got this, and, and a kind of the military were thinking, hey, look at this. This is state-of-the-art anti-gravity uh, technologies or, or gravity reduction technologies. Wow, isn't this incredible? And, of course, the military could now use these technologies for kind of uh, deeper kind of um, – uh, inner Earth orbit operations and beyond. But of course, what they didn't realize was that this was very old hand-me-down technology from the Solar Warden program. And and so this is what Corey Good has revealed. So again, uh, we have different layers of uh, uh, advanced uh, space vehicles. And depending on how old they are, uh, they can be used in uh, the secret space programs, the most secretive, or they can be handed down to the military to kind of like get the military on board because the the important thing to keep in mind here uh, Freeman is that you know the military people contrary to what many other people think and, and what I thought to begin with these are very smart people and you know if you have a four-star general a four-star admiral or four-star general uh, heading up one of these advanced uh, kind of space programs, you, you have to fool these people into thinking that the technology that they have is the most sophisticated, is the most advanced. So you've got to be able to fool them into truly believing that the, the kind of like ant, or the, the kind of gravity reduction uh, military space shuttles that they're sending up into near-Earth orbit with the space stations they have up there is state-of-the-art. And if they start suspecting that there's something more advanced, then you release to them uh, – uh, this more advanced stuff, such as the TR3B, and say, "Hey, you guys, you're really smart. You figured this out. Yes, this is this is what it is. This is what Lockheed has been working on, and so now here it is for you guys to to work with." And so they release kind of older tech space technologies to the kind of four four star admirals and generals that are running space command and so forth from Cheyenne Mountain. Yeah, I remember when they handed down a couple of space telescopes that were super superior to the Hubble. And the, the secret space program just kicked them down to, to NASA and, and basically were like, eh, we don't, we don't need these, you know, two of these anymore. And it's, uh, you know, leaps and bounds. This was public uh, report, as far as I know. Um, you know, the, the space telescopes were leaps and bounds above what we have, and they, these were the hand-me-downs, so... Exactly. Yes, that I, I remember that case that the Air Force basically gave these two advanced uh, telescopes that were more, more that were superior to the Hubble Space Telescope, which is supposed to be state of the art, and they gave it to NASA, and, and NASA didn't know what to do with it because right. you know they have a whole they have a whole procurement process um, and development process that takes kind of like decades to, to kind of. Uh, develop stuff and put it up in space. And so here the Air Force offers them this advanced uh, telescope equipment, more advanced than the Hubble, and, and NASA didn't know what to do with it, and they just basically mothballed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I can't exactly. help but, but note that uh, most of the people that have gone into space have also practiced in the rites and rituals of Freemasonry. And, you know, to the point that Buzz Aldrin established Tranquility Lodge on the moon, supposedly. Now, what this makes me wonder, if we have this secret space program above and beyond the military space program, then they had to have made some sort of agreements with these extraterrestrials to be able to go out there, wouldn't you think? Well, you know, there's agreements and there's alliances, and this is the, the thing that um, there have been agreements that have been reached with different extraterrestrial groups um, that the secret space program, Solar Warden, um, is not the only space program that has that, – that exists – 
that is indigenous to the earth. There, there are many others, according to Corey Good, and in, in particular, he talks about one called the kind of interplanetary corporate conglomerate uh, that was developed out of the secret projects that Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, Boeing, and so forth, that uh, they developed all of these secret um, kind of aerospace uh, technologies, anti-gravity technologies, that over time uh, basically became the basis of the nucleus of the Inter, interplanetary corporate conglomerate that was even more advanced than the um, solar warden, and that the group that was that was um, involved with this interplanetary corporate conglomerate, or the ICC, according to Corey Good, it was Majestic Twelve. That Majestic Twelve uh, in the 1950s they recognised that the development of Solar Warden would not be something that they could control, that there would be a, a very firm military element controlling this. So as they developed Solar Warden, they developed a parallel corporate space program called the ICC. And this is the program where you actually have a lot of the kind of uh, dark magic, kind of more the um, uh, magical Masonic elements involved because uh, Majestic 12 is very heavily involved in uh, magic or black magic. So even though you had some of the Apollo astronauts such as uh, uh, Buzz Aldrin being a 33-degree uh, Freemason associated with the Scottish Rite, um, it was really in the program that was run uh, by uh, Majestic 12, the ICC, that was most heavily involved with the magical elements. And and even beyond that, there's another program uh, that uh, that Corey Good has developed uh, has described, which which he calls the Dark Fleet. And the Dark Fleet it really is where you kind of get this. Um, intermeshing of uh, Nazism, uh, reptilian, uh, Draco reptilians, uh, kind of like high black magic, all intersecting with this dark fleet. And um, and this dark fleet operates largely outside of the of the so uh, our solar system, kind of like uh, like imperial stormtroopers, as you saw in the uh, the Star Wars trilogies uh, that that the Dark Fleet basically recruits that the kind of nastiest, the worst stuff of, of humanity in terms of kind of really unscrupulous people as super soldiers that would be part of this dark fleet that would go off into deep space and fight alongside the uh, reptilian, the Draco reptilians, to subvert and conquer human human worlds in other solar systems. Um, and so this is kind of really dark stuff, but this is like the, the, the kind of more hidden space program that Corey has revealed. So you have kind of different layers of magic and secrecy and kind of Satanism involved in these different programs. Absolutely. Well, where should we be looking, Dr. Sala? We're wrapping up this hour here, and we've gone from the concept of just trying to prove extraterrestrials exist to the idea that we are in corporations with the extraterrestrial community in the galaxy uh so what do you see coming do you have uh, some ideas have you been looking forward and, and coming up with uh maybe the way that they'll release the disclosure or uh how do you see anything coming down the pipe well, 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 yes, Freeman. I think uh, the disclosures that we're having uh, through this new whistleblower, Corey Good, uh, really are the best that I have seen in terms of really articulating what is going on behind the, behind the scenes in terms of these very different space programs, different layers of secrecy, different layers of involvement and different uh, levels of government, military, corporate and civilian involvement in all of these space programs. And I think it's very important that we understand that the that the secret space program really is the window through which we can understand um, not only ha how different governments, especially in the United States, kind of like uh, developed and monopolized this kind of information, 
but also how they have cooperated and made deals with different extraterrestrial groups in terms of um, developing and deploying these technologies. And so it's really a very complex picture. People think that uh, our disclosure is going to be kind of like pretty simple, like, oh, okay, government is going to release through some kind of statement, you know, Obama's going to come up and, and give a statement um, CNN and Fox saying that we're not alone, that uh, extraterrestrials are out there and now we are going to really work to reveal the truth to the, uh, of this to you. That in fact that there's multiple layers to this and that we can't rely on any government disclosure in getting anywhere near the truth. That even if Obama came out and gave the public uh, a, a kind of an announcement, this announcement would only be 5% of really what's going on. And that 5% will be heavily skewed into manipulating us into a new agenda. And we really owe it to ourselves not to be sucked into a new government uh, agenda, which basically manipulates us. We really need to go deeply into this, understand the different levels of space programs, the different extraterrestrial groups that are, that are interfering or interacting with humanity so that we can really say, okay, you know, we're ready for the truth and we want the full truth. We don't want 5% of the truth that just suckers us down another another kind of dead end. So we want the whole truth and the best way to prepare for that is to kind of like get up to speed with the kind of revelations that, that Corey has been revealing and I'm very fortunate that that, that, of, that Corey has been um, kind of like releasing a lot of his information um, through, uh, through his answers to questions that I've been able to put to him as well as through people like David Wilcock and also uh, through his own website uh, which is the, the Sphere Alliance uh, website. All right. Well, I don't know if he's uh, wanting to get out and talk in the public, but boy, that'd be somebody I'd love to talk to. <laughs> sure. He, he is... He is releasing information, but he's doing it at the moment through just a select number of uh, sources because he wants to make sure that nothing is distorted right. uh, because I think uh, he understands that uh, this information um, is very complex, it's very subtle, and that in, in order to have it released, it needs to be done through the right channels. And so at the moment, he's just kind of limiting his the channels that he uses to disseminate this information. But as as more of this information is disseminated, I think he's going to be wanting to kind of like um, interact with more with uh, people who are releasing this information, such as what you're doing. Now, again, how is he getting this information? He worked with the secret space programs for 20 years and then he went through the uh, age regression time travel technologies that that is used the standard operating procedure on secret space program employees uh, but what makes Corey good unique uh, there have been others that have come forward before him uh, Michael Ralph for example uh, went through the same process as did Randy Kramer who went through the same 20-year uh, process uh, what makes Corey unique is that he recalls his memories and that the other thing that makes uh, Corey um, very unique is that he has been cooperating with a group of extraterrestrials called the Sphere Alliance this is a group of five extraterrestrial civilizations with advanced technologies that have been uh, basically instrumental in putting together uh, a solar system-wide quarantine where basically all of these, these different space programs can't leave the solar system and that they have assisted the Solar Warden program to put together a planetary-wide quarantine which ensures that the different space programs can't enter or leave the Earth through various technologies. And so this is a, a group of extraterrestrials that Corey Good has been working with and, and he has been instrumental in releasing their information. I'm just curious if you think there will ever be this uh, blue beam or even a, a real um, or mock alien invasion. I think that that was something that was put together like 20 years ago. And I think they certainly studied the feasibility of that. But I think that what has happened is that too many people, um, too many military people and this is the important thing because i think that the thing for even we have to kind of like really appreciate here is that when the uh the cabal or when the illuminati 
uh, are putting together their plans, they're not thinking about how do we fool the general public. They, they can fool the general public easily. They have been doing that for years. What they're really asking is how can we fool the military elite, the people that run the military space programs who are suspicious that they've been hoodwinked? How can we fool them? They tried with 9-11. 9-11 was a, was a test case, not, not to see how, how they could fool the general public. They wanted to see how much they could fool the military elite that were running these space programs. And quite frankly, they failed dismally. The military uh, elite that are involved in this um, kind of uh, secret space puzzle program, they understood that 9-11 was a false flag operation as as well as the uh, the false flag operations in Britain and in, in France. So, and they were crying blue murder and they were basically releasing, um, uh, leaking a lot of information that 9-11 was an inside job. So I, I believe that the reason why they haven't gone forward with Project Moonbeam uh, is, is be, not because the public has gotten up to speed, it's because the kind of uh, the military won't allow it. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, you sit back in these normal days and your normal life and you know all of this stuff is going on around you and you just wonder when is that Independence Day event going to occur where there's, or the V, uh, you know, a giant craft hanging out and everybody can definitively go, oh my God, you know, we are now in extraterrestrial yeah. presence. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's like uh, the military, and we're talking about the, the white hats within the military, you know, through the disclosure project, uh, through many different uh, whistleblowers that have emerged through, say, Project Camelot or through, uh, say, uh, more recently with uh, Corey Good and, uh, and Randy Kramer. There, there have been a succession of military whistleblowers that have come forward. And the reason that they can do this is because that there are forces within the military military that want this information re released into the public domain. They want to get the public up to speed because they, the military, do not want the cabal, the Illuminati, to move forward with their plans, which the military recognise is, is not only a threat to US national security, but is a threat to, to global security. Amazing. And I hear you on all of that. And I want to thank you so much, Dr. Sala, for giving us this time. His website is exopolitics.org. You definitely want to check this often. There's all kinds of news and articles and keeping up with the latest contact with extraterrestrial sources. Uh, anything else you want to lay out for the public? Uh, we've got your Mount Shasta sum summer conference coming up. It's August 19th through the 23rd at Mount Shasta. I have had the great pleasure of uh, staying at the Gilliland Ranch and witnessing for myself the amount of craft that you can watch from uh, Mount Adams there. Uh, it's, it's astonishing when you see all these things making right-hand turns and everything out there. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, on top of this Mount Shasta conference, do you have uh, anything else coming? Well, basically, there's going to be uh, new updates uh, where the information uh, Corey Good has been receiving uh, from the uh, Secret Space Program Alliance. Uh, that's the Solar Warden Program people that are working with the positive extraterrestrials that uh, that I mentioned earlier, the, the Sphere Alliance. He's going to be releasing uh, new uh, sets of answers to questions about uh, how the kind of dark fleet and this and the corporate space program have been manipulating humanity and have been basically creating a slave trade where uh, humans have been taken off planet and used as commodities for exchange for advanced technology. So very disturbing stuff. Some of the more kind of darker aspects of the secret space program activities. Uh, but he's going to be uh, working with me uh, through exopolitics.org in releasing this information and so that's going to be happening over the next uh, few days so people can kind of just go to exopolitics.org and, and keep up with the updates well, I definitely will Dr. Sala and let's make sure it's not another 10 years before we talk again definitely Freeman and thanks for all you do to kind of get the word out and to let people know what uh, is really going down 
Yeah, it's an amazing puzzle, and I find uh, our our planet quite wonderful in the sense that I am filled with wonder at everything that is going on around me every day, and I know uh, it's it's going to be an amazing, amazing time here in the very near future as all of these revelations start to come forward. I, I, I just want to throw in one last thing. as uh, My trepidation at the fact that they simulcast the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, sending it into deep space using the Cape Canaveral antenna array uh, to send The Day the Earth Stood Still, starring Keanu Reeves, to Alpha Centauri, which is believed to be the closest inhabited star system to our own. And, of course, this movie makes out the plot that humans are the most horrific warlike beings on the, in the galaxy and you should send a giant robot here to uh, either destroy or maintain us all. I mean, all the movies in the world that we could send to E.T., why would we send the day the Earth stood still? Anyway. Well, well maybe it was kind of like a, a symbolic representation of what the earth needs and uh, maybe a call for some more advanced ETs to come here to kind of really help us sort out the situation on the planet. And I think, you know, in a way that the Sphere Alliance uh, that Corey Good has been describing kind of represent Klaatu um, and that kind of um, intergalactic peacekeeping uh, entity that is represented in the in the day the earth stood still so in, in a way maybe this is what we are seeing now with the uh, with the revelations of, uh, of Corey uh, that now we are at that point where our planet needs to make a choice whether we are going to go down the path of peace or war and I think that the choice has been made we're going to go down the path of peace and so that means that everything is going to be revealed fantastic Fantastic. I, I, I'm so excited for all of that revelation myself. I can't wait for the world to get weird. So it may sound like we're describing the plot line to the new Disney movie Tomorrowland with extraterrestrial or interdimensional communication utilizing high technology and a satellite transmitting messages to planet Earth to try to bring us to peace. Well, go Disney for giving us this eugenics program that they they put out as Tomorrowland. Um, but this whole idea of taking all the richest, smartest, and uh, most artistic people and transmitting them into another dimension so they can make utopia is a scary thought to me. I think, like Dr. Sala saying, that we can do it. We can move towards peace. And if, if Reagan's message of anything of saying, wouldn't it be great if an extraterrestrial race forced us all to, to feel as one, uh, you know, this really could be the case because nothing brings people together like a good catastrophe. That's one thing I know. And it's only my hope that we'll start to make these moves simply on the knowledge of what's going on around us and not wait until that moment when we have to react to giant UFOs in our skies. So thank you all for tuning into the Free Zone every week here on freemantv.com. And Dr. Sala, thank you again for participating way back in the day in the Freeman Perspective and now back on the Free Zone. And we will talk again very soon. Aloha, Freeman. Aloha. Aloha.